As you've heard me say a few times as we go through Isaiah, don't get too comfortable. We will be standing back up in a minute to read. Uh, This morning, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 29, verses 9 through 24. So we're not going to do the entire chapter this time, but I do want to look at um, a majority of this chapter. Before I do, just a reminder that we're in a section of Isaiah, which goes from chapters 28 to 39. This is a section in in Isaiah's uh, book, this fifth gospel, as some people would say, in, in which God is declaring his determination and his power to fulfill all of his promises. The first 27 chapters, we hear about God's promises and his purposes and plans for his people and for the nations. And now in 28 to to, to 39, we're gonna hear about, you read there about God's determination to bring those to pass. This morning, the, the first, if you're, as you're turning there, and I would encourage you to do so, uh, it's not printed in your bulletin this morning, but as you're turning there or looking that up on your, your phone or device, whatever you have, let me talk about the first eight verses very briefly. It begins with the words, ah, Ariel, Ariel, and Ariel is, is a designation for Jerusalem there. And what God says to Jerusalem, the the city, the capital city in Judah, the southern kingdom, he declares that the city that is filled of constant feasting will soon be radically changed to where the people are whispering with their face in the dust. (laughs) What a contrast. The city is going to go through feasting and reveling and and, and the change is going to be to where their face is in the dust and they're whispering. They're, they're, they're barely willing to talk. And as you've seen, hopefully in Isaiah, this book is very much about God bringing down the proud from their proud heights and bringing them down to their faces. That's what's going to happen to Jerusalem. And the reason it's going to happen is because God himself is going to besiege the city. God himself is going to build up siege works against Jerusalem. In, in verse 6, uh, you, read, you can read this, that God is going to come with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. This is how I'm going to show up, he says. Uh, last night, uh, Lori and I had the, the privilege and the joy of getting to spend a little bit of time with Henry. We went over to see Zach and Kaylee and and just got to hold Henry for a little while. It was a joy and uh, it, 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 I can see Lori's heart just growing and, and beaming. Mine too, mine too. Um, but, but while we were visiting, uh, the TV was on and just kind of in the background and Forrest Gump was on. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the movie Forrest Gump. I remember well, we shared the story of when we were living in San Antonio and Lori and I just on a whim said, hey, let's go see this new movie that just came out. Yes, that dates us a little bit. It was in, I think, 94. And we go to the movie theater and we thought it was gonna be a comedy and we left in tears. You know, it caught us off guard. But maybe you remember the scene uh, where uh, Forrest Gump encounters and has reconnected with a friend from the military from his time in, in combat with Lieutenant Dan. And Lieutenant Dan has, is now a paraplegic. He's lost his, his legs. 
and he's wrestling with life and he's struggling with this perception of who God is and he kind of scoffs at Forrest for believing in God and they, they go into the shrimping business together or Lieutenant Dan joins him and they're out trying to catch shrimp and they keep coming back empty. Nothing to show for it and Lieutenant Dan kind of says to Forrest after another unsuccessful fishing outing while they're out on the boat, he says, where's that God of yours now? And the, the Forrest narrating says, funny thing he asked that because it was right then that God showed up. And maybe you remember what happened. They get caught in a hurricane. <laughs> they're, they're at sea and, and shrimping and the hurricane sweeps in and, and, and God does battle with Lieutenant Dan in that scene. That's what God says here. I'm gonna show up with hurricane force. I'm gonna show up and this is another, as we heard about in chapter 28, of God's strange works. God often reveals himself in the events in our life in ways that we do not anticipate and we would certainly never choose. Let me just read a couple of questions from Ray Ortland in a, in a sermon that he gave on this, this chapter. He asked these questions and it really posed them, it's rhetorical. He says, did you know that your greatest breakthrough might be when you hit a brick wall? Did you know that the most constructive thing that might happen to you is when your world falls apart? What does he mean by that? Orland goes on to explain that it is the storms in life or the failures or the crises in our lives, those things that we just can't quite see through or understand or see around, it is those things that actually confront us with the very reality of God. And it confronts us with the reality that we are not God and we certainly do not have control. We can't make sense of those circumstances. We don't understand why or how God is choosing to work in such ways that we would never choose for ourselves. And we're faced with the mystery of God in those, in those moments and encountering God, as Ortland says, at a new level of profundity and discovering at a new level what it means to trust him and to surrender to him. God's word provides us with insights and depictions of the character of God and the mind of God. We read scripture to know him, but not simply to know about him, but to actually know him as he is, to see how he works in times past and know he is unchanging and he continues to work today. In Isaiah 29, nine through 24, we'll be provided this morning with the opportunity to see not only his attributes, but also his intentions and his purposes and how he works. And we will see that his purposes, even when those plans include the storm and the hurricane and the brick wall in life, that those very things are guided and motivated by his love and his grace for us. Two points this morning that I wanna make in the sermon. First, wants to see that God actually is the one who actually and accurately sees our real problems and our desperate condition. And then secondly, that God does more than just address our symptoms, but he transforms us through his works. With that, if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of scripture this morning? 
Isaiah 29, I'll begin in verse 9. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing and the scoffers cease and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off who by a word make a man out to be an offender and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed. No more shall his face grow pale for when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. So first looking at, beginning in verse nine, we see that God accurately sees our problems and our desperate condition. He begins to describe why it is that he has come as a hurricane. Why would God need to come with such apparent violence or with, with such force? And he begins to describe here what is going on. He begins to discern what's really the heart of the matter. Zig Ziglar the famous salesman and motivational speaker once said, the first step in solving a problem is to recognize that it does actually exist. God reveals here that he knows our problems and our condition. We need to trust and understand that God actually knows us better than we know ourselves. Beginning in verse nine, he says, astonish yourselves and be astonished, blind yourselves and be blind, be drunk, but not with wine, stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out on you a spirit of deep sleep. He's closed your eyes, the prophets, covered your heads, the seers. 
Now, back in chapter 28, uh, we heard about the people in Samaria and the leaders, the priests and the prophets in Judah, who were literally staggering around drunk, intoxicated. But here, Isaiah declares that they weren't only stumbling around because they were, they were intoxicated, but because they were blind. They had a, a bigger problem. And what he's describing here is not physical blindness, but spiritual blindness, there is in this both a human uh, willfulness. He says, blind yourselves. There's a, there's a choice in like, I refuse to see. I refuse to see what God is showing me. But then there's also this divine prerogative. Do you see that as well? He says, the Lord has poured out on you a spirit of sleep. So here are the, the people in Judah and in Jerusalem and they, they choose to ignore the reality of God and the God they refuse to see then hides himself from their view. This isn't only true of Jerusalem there in, in Isaiah's day. Jesus himself encountered this kind of spiritual blindness. Uh, listen in Matthew 15. Uh, this is beginning in verse eight. Uh, this is talking about Jesus. He called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Now, this is just an an example of one of the times when Jesus is teaching and he invites people, come and hear and understand me. It's an invitation. Here I am, I'm gonna teach you. And And he gives this clear teaching. The disciples come to him and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard you say this? The Pharisees went off in a huff. Did you know that? And he said, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Jesus says, the problem isn't what I said, it's that they are blind, they're deaf, they refuse to listen, they refuse to hear. So Jesus who invites invites people to, to hear and to understand him, they're offended because they listened with suspicion. They were ready to be offended perhaps or defensive. They weren't willing to see themselves in light of God's word, so they were spiritually blind. That's what Jesus declares here. And sometimes the only way that God can show us the limitations of our perceptions is by confronting us with something we simply can't see through or we can't see around. He confronts us with a problem that we can't solve, an obstacle that we can't overcome so that we will stop and consider our own spiritual blindness. If you're facing something that you can't see through or around, a problem that you can't solve, maybe you need to stop and just say, God, what do you want to show me about me in this? Verse 13, 13 we read, and the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, and he's gonna continue, but let me pause with verse 13. He says here, he acknowledges there are people worshiping God in Jerusalem. There are people gathering to worship, but God was not honored by their worship. He wasn't pleased. Why? Why wouldn't God be pleased as people gather to worship him? We're told that they were only giving lip service. 
You're just giving lip service. They gave outward expressions of worship, but their hearts were far from God. Back in Matthew 15, we jump back there, actually just before what I read a moment ago, Jesus quotes Isaiah, this verse. He quotes Isaiah as he's talking about people in Jerusalem worshiping God. The the scribes and the Pharisees had come to Jesus and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. That would also be the tradition of a lot of mamas out there. Wash your hands. This is probably having to do more also though, not just with simply eating, but maybe as they gathered corporately, maybe it's related even to, to worship in some way. But here they, they weren't following the traditions and so they, they reprimanded Jesus' followers. Jesus responded and he, he said, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. And then he, he talks about, this is what God's commanded, but yet you do this, which is based on your tradition. So you actually break the commandment of God to uphold the tradition of men. And then he says, so for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. You hypocrites, he says, you're two-faced. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, and then he quotes Isaiah 29, 13. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Isaiah and Jesus both knew that God is calling people to himself because he seeks worshipers who will worship in spirit and truth. And he wants us to draw near to him, not just to know him as a theological idea, but to draw near to him, to rest in him, to love him, to cry out to him. I have heard from people in different contexts, in different ways. Sometimes people come and ask me and talk to me about the church they're attending. And, or sometimes people hear and they say, you know, I just don't, I don't feel a certain thing in worship. I, I worship and I don't feel a certain way. Do I need to go and find the place that will make me feel that way? Before you do that, before you do that, I would like to encourage you, if you want to 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 address your lack of feeling on Sunday morning, you need to change something you do from Monday to Saturday. That's the problem. Because it's Monday to Saturday that Christ longs to be with you. It's Monday through Saturday that he avails himself to you and says, come and know me. (laughs) Come and rest in me. Find a spot and sit down and open and read a verse And just pray and say, Jesus, help me know you more. Cry out to him in prayer. And I, I'm not a prophet in terms of I can't tell the future, but if I was a betting man, if you will change what you do Monday to Saturday, it will dramatically and radically transform your experience on Sunday. Because God wants you to worship him in spirit and truth, he doesn't want lip service from you and you finding a place that does lip service the way that it feels best to you, he wants your heart in worship. The second problem was heartless worship. That's a problem that we can face today. The third issue that's addressed is in verse 14 to 16. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder The wisdom of their wise men shall perish. The discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. 
Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord, your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us? God says that he's doing this wonderful thing. It's this marvelous, but I think it's, it's like this thing that you would never anticipate, this incredible thing that you can't see through or around that you just can't make sense of. He's doing this marvelous thing, and in that, he's going to deal with the wisdom of their wise men. Notice, it will perish. So he goes on to, then to describe this worldly wisdom. And what he depicts here is how the unbelieving heart expresses itself in worldly wisdom that is actually spiritual folly. That's what's depicted here for us. This, these unbelieving expressions expressing itself in worldly wisdom that is absolute spiritual folly. They say, who sees us? Who knows us? They think they can hide their deeds even from God. Actually, what was going on is they were constructing God after their own image. God is like us. He's limited in sight the same way that we are. And if we recreate God in our image, then we can easily dismiss him. But in reality, aren't we all tempted to do that? Sometimes in our attempts to make sense of God, we begin to reimagine him to be increasingly like us. And then when the hardships and the calamities and the storm of life that we experience that don't make sense, then we can disregard him. We wouldn't do things this way, so how could God? And since we wouldn't do this way, things this way, then certainly there must not be a God because if there is a God, he must be just like me instead of us being confronted with the reality that we are not God. Verse 16, you turn things upside down. This is upside down thinking. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. This is the folly, the folly of us thinking that God answers to us instead of recognizing he is the potter and we are the clay. So does God find us in these situations, spiritually blind cold-hearted, heartless worship, upside-down thinking? Does he find us there and simply leave us there? Thanks be to God, no. (laughs) He doesn't just leave us there, and that's what we find following in verses 17 to the end. And so the second point then is that God, he does more though than just address the symptoms. He doesn't just kind of clean us up in those areas. He actually transforms us. And this is the promise, brothers and sisters, that we have, that any of us who is in Christ Jesus, if you're united by faith to Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. You are a new creation in him. And this is the transforming work. Listen how it's depicted here in Isaiah, beginning in verse 17. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field? And the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. Lebanon is a place that is mountainous and wild. It is by no means lush. But God says, I'm gonna transform it. Now, this passage is not only prophetic, it's also poetic. He isn't talking about agricultural renewal in this region, but he's talking about spiritual transformation in the hearts of people. He's talking about new lives. We know 
We know that this is the work of the Spirit of God. God's Spirit who, who works inwardly in us and, and transforms and gives us hearts of flesh to believe and begins this work of sanctification even that, that Dusty prayed about. And he does this work and he makes us more and more into the image of the one we are united to, even Jesus Christ. So what God wants to do in your life is to bear fruit. Fruit, spiritual fruit, spirit-wrought fruit in your lives. And he is doing that and he will continue to do that. But that only happens as you abide in the vine, in Christ himself. So here's this, this fruitfulness of life, this transformation. Look at verse 18. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. He opens ears and eyes. This is the work of God. You, you heard earlier this, the, the blindness and the deafness and even those who, who could read couldn't open the book and those who could open the book couldn't read. There's, they, they can't make any sense of it. They've chosen blindness and they have this deep spirit of blindness and sleep over them. But God says now that's gonna be transformed. Let me read a, a little bit of John Piper. This is out of an interview that he gave. He says this, left to ourselves, we will see the gospel, see Christ, see scripture, but not see it or see him for what it truly is. That's if left to ourselves, we won't see it for what it truly is. Namely, the most beautiful, valuable reality in the world. We can see, but there's something wrong with our spiritual capacities to discern the beauty and value of what we see so that we always wind up preferring other things over God. Seeing they do not see, Jesus said. That's the essence of sin. And it's the plight of every human being, not just a few. The only hope, therefore, for salvation, for recognizing who Christ is and what his word is, the only hope for this salvation, therefore, is that God would miraculously shine in our hearts with the light of the glory of God. I won't ask for a show of hands but I don't think you'd be ashamed to hold it up. But if, if, you, if you know the light of the glory of God, if you've seen that in the person of Jesus Christ, then something miraculous has happened in you. That's the only way it can happen. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, he talks about the blindness of the minds of unbelievers. And then he says, what we proclaim is not ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves just as servants. All we do is hold up Jesus. And we do that for Jesus' sake, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's all we do for people. We hold up Christ and pray that he will give the light of his, of his spirit's light, discernment to see him for all he is. God will do that. Look at verse 19. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. The poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. This makes me think of the shepherds back at Christmas preached on the shepherds who went and saw the Christ child, if you remember, and they saw this baby in a manger and they left glorifying God. <laughs> this encounter with Jesus of these meek and lowly shepherds, it results in them worshiping as they travel back home. Here, God says, it's the meek who will be given joy. That's the humble. 
It's the poor, I believe the poor in spirit, as Jesus would say in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the poor in spirit who will exalt and praise and rejoice. Not the proud, not the determined, not the successful, not the beautiful, but the meek, the humble, and the poor in spirit. They will see God. They will have joy. God adorns the meek with joy. He fills the mouths of the poor with praise. He goes on to describe how God will provide justice and, and, um, and protection for his people in verses 20 and 21. He describes what will happen of their opponents. God will deal with them. And we've heard this before that vengeance belongs to God and God will take care of the enemies. But then let's close by looking at 22 to 24. I don't wanna miss this last critically important piece of what God does. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham. He redeemed Abraham. Abraham was redeemed. He was redeemed by God who saved him from his own unbelief and the pagan world in Ur. God called Abram and he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was saved by God's grace through faith and he is the father of all those who believe. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. The reference to Jacob here is not just a reference to his grandson and not even just to the Israelites, but to all those who descend from Abraham. And as I just mentioned, as we read in Roman, Romans, we are descended from Abraham as children of faith. This is about us, church. This is about the transformation that God does here and now. Jacob shall no more be ashamed. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No more shall his face grow pale for when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding and those who murmur will accept instruction. Look at this transforming work that God does. No more shame. These are the very ones who will sanctify God's name. They'll stand in awe of the God of Jacob. Even those who go astray, he will grant understanding. Those who murmur, they'll receive instruction. Why? Why does this happen? What is our hope for this? It's back in verse 23. He says, this is the work of my hands. <laughs> it's all God's work. He will do it. He will do it in your life. When you face the next calamity, the next sorrow, when you face the next hardship in your life and you feel like it's gonna bring you to the ground, that's a moment where God wants you to see him and know him. He's not abandoning you. He's right there. He loves you. He wants you to see things in yourself but he also wants to transform you to be something new by his grace. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your kindness, for your gentleness. I thank you for your severity when we need that. But I thank you that even that is just an extension of your grace. So we give you thanks and praise in Christ's name, amen.